Well, this morning, we're going to talk about something that I am sure no one in our church, no one in this church ever struggles with. Worry. Anxiety. I only share it with you in case you should happen to run into somebody out there who's, who's struggling with it. There's an interesting thing about anxiety, about worry. It is a symptom of something deeper in our lives. And a good doctor, as you know, doesn't stop at symptoms. You want a doctor who's going to work with you to get down to the, the root of the problem, right? Usually through tests and or questions. That's exactly what Jesus does as he continues in his Sermon on the Mount. Before he ever mentions the word anxiety in verse 25, he is going to lead us to deal with three root questions. The first question is this, where is your treasure? Where's your treasure? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says there, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It could be translated, stop laying up treasures on earth. You say, why? Because making temporary things our treasure is a horrible investment. Look what he says here, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, we got moths in Arizona. We know clothes break down. Rust, you don't know about that if you grew up here. My, my father-in-law, where we grew up in Ohio, he's a car body guy, and he always looks in wonder at the cars out here in Arizona and how long these bodies last. Back there, you know what happens? Even if the motor's good, they rust out because of all that salt. Some translate this word rust as vermin or rodents. They think it's referring to the mice or rats that would eat up someone who had grain stored or, or corn. Whatever the case, you get the idea. And where thieves break in and steal. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And you think about this. Even the temporary things in our lives that survive past our own lifetimes will not survive the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And he goes on to talk about temporary things destroyed by fire in that day. But it's not just head knowledge. He says this ought to affect the way you live. Verse 11, how to live in light of that. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Keep the eternal in mind. Live lives set apart to God. Live lives that reflect God. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 6, 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now there's a good investment tip from our Lord Jesus Christ. But you may be saying, 
well, how do I lay up treasures in heaven, right? Well, first you need to have an account open in the bank of heaven. In order to have an account there, you've got to be a citizen of heaven. And in order to be a citizen of heaven, you have to have a connection with someone who is perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous. A connection with Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. Have you turned to him in repentance and faith and embraced him as your Lord and Savior? I hope so. If you have, you've got an account in heaven. So you say, how do I start laying up treasure in that account? Well, start by asking yourself a question. What will last forever? I'm going to throw out a couple of things. God. God is eternal. His word is eternal. And the people around you in your life are eternal prioritize those things in your daily life. Warren Wearsby writes that laying up treasures in heaven means using all that we have for the glory of God. We'll get to some more specifics later. For now, verse 21, Jesus goes on, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now you'll find that on a lot of beautiful signs, but what does that mean? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It means whatever we value most will capture our heart and will direct our lives. So let me ask a question. What do we value most? That which is temporary or that which is eternal? Second question. How are your eyes? Now, you're going to learn quickly, we're not talking about these physical eyes. We're not encouraging you to go see the eye doctor, as important as that is. Verse 22, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Now, what does that mean? For many of his listeners, they they saw the eyes kind of like a window to the body and the soul. It represents our mindset, our attitude, how we navigate our way through this world, how we process decisions he says so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light a a clean window that's been nicely washed lets in all the light right he calls it a, a healthy eye if your eye is healthy interesting thing about that a healthy eye can be translated a single eye an eye devoted to one purpose an eye locked in on god and his will, like the soldier Paul used as an example of the faithful Christian. You remember 2 Timothy 2.4? No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see that, that focus? Oh, oh, yeah, we do what we need to do while we live here, but we don't get entangled in it because we're focused on our Savior. If a clean window lets the light in, a dirty window blocks that light, right? Like like the windows on our vehicles after the moisture that comes through. Kids go out there and write, wash me on it, right? Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So a bad eye is obviously the opposite of a health, healthy eye, the opposite of a single eye. So that leads us to think of the bad eye as an eye with blurred or, or double vision. You ask this person, do you have godly motives? And, and they may say, yeah, but they're muddied. They're mixed with, with worldly motives. There's one more layer of meaning here. To the Jews, an evil eye came to mean someone who is miserly or stingy, greedy. Though a healthy eye was the opposite, generous. Okay, so think about this. Are your spiritual eyes healthy or bad? Do you have single or double vision? Are you generous or greedy? Where's your treasure? How are your eyes? And the final of the three questions, who do you really serve? Verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did Jesus say you should not serve God and money? No. What did he say? You cannot. It's impossible. You say, why? Well, people in that culture knew something. They knew that being a slave was a full-time job. It literally consumed your life. You could have only one master at a time. Money's sometimes translated what? Mammon, right. Did you know that mammon was also the name of an ancient god of wealth? Which speaks to the real danger of money becoming your god or my god. I was thinking about this week, does anyone else think it's in the least bit ironic that we print in God we trust on the very thing we're most tempted to put in this place? And I got kind of a bad news, good news thing here. Bad news is money makes for a horrible God. Think of what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The good news, money in its right place can be a wonderful tool in the life of the believer. Paul goes on in that same chapter, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In a nutshell, what is this? It's the life of a steward. 
one who realizes that all he or she has belongs to God, enjoys it thankfully, and uses it for him. I like the way one man put it here. The possession of wealth is not a sin, but it is a grave responsibility. If a man owns many material things, it's not so much a matter for congratulation as it is a matter for prayer, that he may use them as God would have him to. A couple questions flow out of this one. Who do you serve? Do you love God and use money? Or do you love money and try to use God? Do you really serve God or money in your life? And this question is crucial, not only because God is the rightful king and master and money is an imposter. It's also crucial because we become like whatever we worship. Think about that. Do we serve a master who is full of life and love and power? Or do we serve a master which is lifeless, indifferent, and powerless to meet our deepest needs? Where's your treasure? How are your eyes? And who do you serve? Different answers to these three questions lead to different symptoms in our lives. Healthy answers lead to healthy symptoms. Check this out. If your master is God, you'll be satisfied because he is more than enough. He's more than enough. If your eyes are healthy, generous, you'll be content because you're focused on those needier than yourself. If what you value most cannot be destroyed or taken, you'll be at peace. Why? Because you know your treasure is secure. See how that works? But the flip side is true as well. Unhealthy answers lead to unhealthy symptoms. If your master is money, you will be restless because money can never satisfy your soul. If your eyes are bad, greedy, you will be covetous because there is always more. Michael Green compares this to drinking ocean water when you're thirsty. It doesn't quench the thirst of our soul. If what you value most can be destroyed or taken, you will be Anxious because you know deep down it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. That's why as Jesus begins talking about anxiety in verse 25, he starts with the word therefore because what follows is directly connected to these three questions. Verse 25, therefore, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, we got to define anxiety or worry, whatever you call it here. He says, do not be anxious about your life. 
First, what is it not? Is, is he saying the believer in Jesus Christ should just sit back passively and, and do nothing? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, is he speaking against hard work and, and planning? No, remember Proverbs 6, 6 through 8? Look at the ant as an example, right? God's word does not contradict itself. So, so what is he telling us to stop? Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. The Greek word is very picturesque. It can mean to be distracted or torn or drawn in many directions. I, I think of that ancient torture device when they would, someone would be drawn and quartered, right? tied to four different horses. And we also think of Martha, Jesus' friend in Luke 10, 38. Remember, Jesus came to visit her and her sister, Mary. Luke tells us a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. If this shows us nothing else, it shows us that even good things can bring worry, anxiety, and cause us to miss the best things in our lives. Leads us to ask, what are the, the many things in my life that I am distracted by? And is there anything in my life that is causing me to miss the good portion? If so, our cry ought to be, Lord, help me focus on you. I think about Jesus' parable of the, the seed. The seed was the word of God. And, and as it grew up, there were different kinds of plants in different places. Matthew 13, 7, other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. And he would explain what this meant. Matthew 13, 22, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Luke says it this way in chapter 8, they're choked by the cares and riches and, and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. How many of us would be willing to go before our Lord and say, Lord, show me. Are there any thorns choking my fruitfulness? Will you please help me tear them off, Lord? He goes on to give us four reasons to stop being anxious. And they all rotate around one of two things. Either... One, anxiety doesn't make sense for the believer. Or two, anxiety does not work. Watch as I go through these four. Number one, anxiety does not make sense because your life and body is greater than food and clothing. He says it right here. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do you understand the simple logic and reasoning here? What Jesus is saying is God gave you the miracle of life. 
Something that scientists, even in 2023, still wonder at. The miracle of life. Is he going to forget the fuel you need? God gave you your body. The most fantastic machine in all of creation. You think about the complexities of what goes on in a single cell or a strand of, of DNA. Is he going to forget the shirt and pants? <laughs> you understand the logic here, and Paul takes this to an even higher level, right? Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the logic there? He gave his son for your eternal life. You think he's somehow going to miss these details in the day-to-day? Second reason anxiety doesn't make sense, because the Father's children are greater than birds. I'd like you to remember this every time you see the beautiful birds coming out. Yesterday we saw some yellow finches in our backyard, some sparrows. We do well to remember the words of Jesus. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Listen, there is a lie in our world today that says animals are equal with humans in value. Or worse, that animals are more valuable Now, we humans really have little right to be here on planet Earth. We're kind of in the way of everything else. It's heinous because it's not what God's Word said. You and I are created in the image of God as no other part of creation is. It's also heinous because it would steal from the comfort that Jesus would like us to derive from the truth. What does God say? Are you not of more value than they? They say, what's the lesson? Well, I I have never yet in all my days seen an adult robin laying down in the grass with its beak open waiting for a worm to crawl in. Have you? Oh, baby's one thing, but I'm talking about adult robins. The the lesson is not laziness, right? They they go get their berries and their worms. They, They build nests. But you know what birds don't do? They don't worry, and they don't overdo it. They do what God has made them for. I want to talk about they don't overdo it. I want to go to a proverb, Proverbs 23, 4. You know what it says? It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Why? Why? Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone, for they surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Listen, I say it this way. I think a biblical balance on work is this. Don't be lazy, but don't go crazy. Okay? (laughs) Going with me? Trust. Trust your heavenly Father, because you are more valuable than the birds that he cares for. Now, you may look at that and say, but, but birds die. 
They sometimes face hard situations. So how am I to find comfort in these words? Well, Jesus is ahead of us on this. Matthew 10, 29, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And that always amazes me, especially at this stage of my life when the number is constantly changing. <laughs> Verse 31, what's he say? Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than any sparrows. What's that mean? It means believer, even when you suffer. Even when you find yourself in a season of need, even when you come to that time of your death, the Father has you in His loving, sovereign hands. We may not understand, but we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Third one, anxiety doesn't work. It doesn't work because it does not accomplish one darn good thing. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? It doesn't work. And not only that, today we know it can do and often does just the opposite. It can't lengthen your life, but it can sure <coughs> shorten it. Fourth reason, anxiety does not make sense. Because the Father's children are greater than the flowers and the grass. How many of you love the wildflowers that pop up around here when the rains come? You go up on Mingus Mountain or even the side of the road sometimes. Wow, the beauty of those things. Listen, would we think of this when we see those? He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? <laughs> Think of the extravagant beauty of a flower. Have you ever picked one and just looked at the patterns on a petal? And he's saying in Israel, as here, sometimes the, the wet weather would come, but then within a matter of days, the dry weather comes and it's dead. And, and women would take that dead grass, that, those dead flowers, and put it in, underneath their clay ovens to heat it up fast when they needed to. You understand the logic? He gives such beauty to kindling. Of course he'll clothe you. Now, I think about all of this, and I want you to imagine a commercial. A commercial for a new product, and unlike most commercials, the, the announcer in the commercial, he's completely honest. He comes on and says, have we got a product for you? Now, let me, let me tell you about our product. This product that we have, it makes zero sense. <laughs> our product does not work. In fact, our product could take years off your life. And it's only for those who, who won't really trust God in a given situation. For $9.99, we'll give you a supply for this whole year of 2023. And if you act fast, we'll give you enough for 2024 as well. How many of you are going to say, that's just what I've been looking for? I got to give me some of that. None of us would be so foolish, right? 
And yet, how many of us know up here that all of that is true about worry? And yet we struggle with it on a day in, day out basis. Most of us want to stop worrying. (laughs) But the question is how? How? Well, in addition to answering the questions at the beginning of this message in a healthy way, I'll pass on some additional wisdom from Jesus. We could even call this a prescription for peace. And you'll notice that each one involves a choice to replace one thing with another. There's three of them. Here's the first one. Replace your anxiety over the unknown by choosing to trust your heavenly father who does know. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows that need you have right now, that need you carried in this morning. When he finished talking about the lilies, you remember what he said in verse 30? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I like that word in the Greek. It's alagapestoi fun to say came up three other times in the book of Matthew when and we can relate to these guys we're human right when the disciples feared drowning in the storm in the boat when when Peter's walking on the water and he begins to sink when the disciples later forgot Christ's power after feeding multitudes each time he said that oh you of little faith and I like what William Hendrickson said about that he said in each case They were not taking to heart the comfort they should have derived from the presence, promises, power, and love of Christ. He says it in this passage because that is just what we do when we worry. Are you, am I, an oligopistoi? Listen, when we have a real, true encounter with God in faith, It moves us from worry to trust. This was pictured in the magician's nephew. I go back to the Chronicles of Narnia one more time. Diggory and Polly were looking into the face of Aslan, who represents Christ, and they're about to to leave Narnia and head back to London. Listen to these words. Both the children were looking up into the lion's face, and all at once the face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating. And such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered into them that they felt they had never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And listen, the memory of that moment stayed with them always so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, The thought of all that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there, quite close, just round some corner or just behind some door, would come back and make them sure deep down inside that all was well. Isaiah puts it more succinctly in chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. 
Second, replace your anxiety over temporary things by choosing to pursue that which lasts. What's he say in verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'm going to talk in military or police terms here to the believer, okay? You are free to go all in on the eternal because God's got your six in the temporary. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, John? Air Force guy. He's got your back in the temporary, so you can go all in on the eternal. I like the way one guy put it. Listen, he said, a great love can drive out every other concern. Such a love can inspire a man's work, intensify his study, purify his life, dominate his whole being. It was Jesus' conviction that worry is banished when God becomes the dominating power of our lives. So maybe you're saying, I want to go all in, but what does that look like? Well, in this very sermon, we can look back and say it looks like practicing the exceeding inside-out righteousness and love that Jesus has been talking about. The right things in the right power and for the right reasons. Okay? But I'm also thankful for H.L. Wilmington of Liberty University. He made a list of 12 things that believers are accountable for. And I think that's directly tied to treasures in heaven. Listen to this. He mentions how we treat other believers. How we use our authority over others. How we use our God-given abilities. How we use our money, our time. How we suffer for Jesus. How we run the particular race God chose for us. How we overcome the flesh how we witness about Jesus to others, how we respond to trials and temptation, how much his return means to us, how faithful we are to his word and his flock. Will we go all in knowing he's got our back? Third and final, replace your anxiety over the future by choosing to live one day at a time. Someone wrote this, the average person is crucifying himself between two thieves, the regrets of yesterday and worries about tomorrow. Listen to what Jesus says, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble. That's the prescription for peace. But I'll make an admission here. In my own life, victory over worry is a daily battle and it's a daily choice. It's not a once and for all thing. I think about my week this week. It started out great. Not only did we just come off all the holiday celebrations with, with friends and, and family, but Monday we celebrated by God's grace 25 years of marriage together. Yeah. <laughs> so thankful for Carolyn, that beautiful gift of God that he's given me. But it was that same day. I started getting texts from some people in the church that led to an email that some of you saw. Somebody from Texas was texting people 
that I know as Pastor Scott and saying, hey, we need some gift cards for some cancer patients. And the, the worries begin. What all information do they have? How'd they get it? Now, I'm not here to add to your worry list, so I want to assure you of a couple of things. My brother-in-law helped us figure it out. All the people had contact info on our website. They're leaders of groups and things like that. That's why we never put the directory on the website. But man, that's not what I wanted to hear while we're celebrating our, our anniversary. And then the next day, I went to the mechanic for something I thought was going to be one hour in this amount <laughs> and found out we were looking at a whole different story. You ever been there? And then to come home to an appliance that's not quite living up to its description. You, anybody? You know, they say things come in threes, and I'm not superstitious, but in this case, it was coming in threes. And, and none of them alone is a big thing, but if you're like me, those little worries, what, what they become like is like this, this totem pole, one, one at the bottom, then, then another one stacked on, and then another one, and, and you start to feel overwhelmed. And I had this picture, I was telling Carolyn, as I was just navigating through some of those, I felt like I was in the ocean and the, the waves are rolling over me and, and you know, I'm, I'm sinking down, but, but there's a, a life raft and, and, and God's reaching his hand and just, will I reach out in faith and grab his hand? And he's so good. I'm thankful that I continued in God's word during this time. We have to stay in there during the, the, the good and the bad. The next morning, it was one verse from Proverbs 3.26. I read it, and you know what it said? It said, the Lord is your confidence. I'm out running through the viewpoint neighborhood with that verse in my mind. I'm even saying it out loud to myself while I'm running. I don't know if anybody heard. I don't care. I was preaching the truth of God's word to my own heart. The Lord is your confidence. And that bolstered me that morning before the kids went to school we, we shared that with them and said, whatever you guys face today, the Lord is your confidence. Let him be your confidence. But God wasn't done building up my heart in faith. Uh, Carolyn came and said, you know what? I've just been reading this week in my quiet time. She's going through Matthew. She was just reading this passage that I'm preaching this week. I said, well, that's cool. And God wasn't done yet. You know how if you're on Facebook... Facebook brings up reminders of things you posted years ago. I want to show you the reminder I got from five years ago that very day. I, I posted some lyrics from, from a song by a Christian artist. I walk with the confidence, there's that word again, I walk with the confidence of ten men, but only because my confidence is in him. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Ephesians 6.10. And there was this picture <laughs> everything I was thinking about in my mind, right, reaching up from five years ago. There's my hand, weakness, helpless, imperfection, but renewed trust, and there is his, God's great strength. Thank you, Lord, for going out of your way to bring me from worry to trust. I'll close with a poem. It's not my own said the robin to the sparrow. I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me.
The truth is we do. The question is, will we remember in faith? Lord, I thank you so much for this passage. You know our human hearts. You know our struggles. You know our battles. And you speak right to them. Thank you. I pray that for anyone who hears the words of this Savior but has not yet come to him in faith, that you draw them to the cross where you gave your own son. And for those of us who, who have already made that decision to trust, Lord, may, may we grab onto that truth that if he took care of that greatest of all needs, surely he will care for us in the rest. May you help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the three things that we talked about there. To replace our anxiety over the unknown by choosing to trust our Heavenly Father who does know. Help us replace our anxiety over temporary things by choosing to pursue that which lasts. Help us replace our anxiety over the future by choosing to live one day at a time, hand in hand, with our Heavenly Father who knows and loves, is sovereign and wise. Lord, I pray even as we give our offering, it would be from trusting hearts. Say, thank you, Father, for your provision in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.